On this podcast, we talk about the stories behind songs and legends, as well as sometimes new up-and-coming artists in a playlist called Roots Music History in the Making. On today's episode, we are talking about Bob Seger. For so many years, everyone thought Bob Seger would be a one-hit wonder. But after not giving up, Bob Seger has absolutely dominated the rock and roll scene. In fact, he has been pegged as the man who blazed the trail for acts such as the Eagles, Tom Petty, John Cougar Mellencamp, Bruce Springsteen, the list kind of goes on and on. Everyone was inspired, arguably, by Bob Seger. Even the youngest generations today know Bob Seger, even though they might not think they do. They know that song, Old Time Rock and Roll. We kind of owe that to Tom Cruise and the movie Risky Business. I like that old time of rock and roll. That kind of music just says the soul. You know what I'm talking about. But of course, he is also known for songs like Against the Wind, Ramblin' Gamblin' Man, Night Moves, and of course, his credit to the Eagles song Heartache Tonight. It's gonna be a heartache tonight, a heartache tonight. You know, you know, just Google Bob Seger if for whatever reason you don't know who he is. If you are under the age of 10, I don't know, but I promise you, you do know who Bob Seger is and you know his songs. But what you might not know is how inspirational his music journey is and was. The journey of Bob Seger proves to everyone just because you are one hit wonder for a few years, decades even, doesn't mean you're not going to explode at some point if you just stick with it. So without further ado, let's dig up the roots of Bob Seger and his musical influence on American culture. Bob Seger was originally born Robert Clark Seeger on May 6th in 1945 to Charlotte and Stuart Seeger. He was the second born and had an older brother named George. Bob's father held a very steady job as a medic at Ford Motor Company in Detroit, Michigan. His dad had a history of music. His dad at one point in time led a full orchestra and could play the guitar, the violin, the mandolin, the piano, pretty much every instrument under the sun his father could play. And his mother, although she didn't play as many instruments as Stuart did, Charlotte also loved music, so the home was always full of some sort of music. The genres of music played in the home spanned all the way from classical music to Elvis and to rock and roll. Charlotte used to tell Bob Seger this story about when he was five years old, his father came home with an Elvis record, and his dad taught Bob when he was just five years old how to play Hound Dog by Elvis on the ukulele. Can you just imagine a five-year-old playing, yay, nothing but hound dog <laughs> like on the ukulele <laughs> but it's funny because it just kind of brings together for you the different genres bob seeger was growing up with unfortunately though his childhood was not all rainbows and ukuleles his parents actually fought quite a bit bob seeger is very open about the fact his father had a drinking problem and a lot of these fights were alcohol fueled when bob was just 10 years old his father finally had enough and abandoned the family he left charlotte left george and left bob in detroit 
Michigan and he went to California. This left Charlotte with a very heavy burden, not only to raise these two boys on her own, but an enormous financial burden. They had to sell their home, which was a middle-class, very nice, comfortable home, obviously downsize into a smaller neighborhood, a smaller home. But Charlotte did everything she could to ensure Bob Seeger and his brother George would get the proper educations that they needed in order to live a well-to-do life. So Bob had a completely normal junior high and high school experience. Bob was involved in different sports, in track, in field, and he was also teaching himself in high school how to play the electric and acoustic guitar. In a lot of ways, I think music was something that Bob held onto from his father. It was kind of the last piece that he had of his dad. Obviously, also growing up in Detroit, Michigan, and then later on in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Bob was exposed to a lot of different types of music, not just in his household, but out of his household as well. There was a lot of rhythm and blues and soul music, in addition to the rock and roll that he loved and the country folk music that his mother would play too. Everything sort of came together for Bob, and it really influenced him. You can hear it in his music, that kind of country folk and rock and roll, and it's also got soul. It's kind of reminds me of Elle King. Elle King is like that. Her voice is so, it's like you, it's like that je ne sais quoi. Like you can't put your finger on what genre that is, but gosh darn, it sounds good. Obviously, learning to play the electric guitar in high school means that you are also probably joining high school bands here and there, and that's exactly what Bob was doing. Bob, along with a few of his classmates who were also playing instruments, decided to form little garage bands here and there. Most of the time, they would just play cover songs at graduation parties or backyard parties. But eventually, Bob decided to join up with some fellows who were serious about becoming musicians, and they called themselves the Decibels. And they were a very serious band. They would rehearse, they would practice, they took their craft very seriously. They weren't just, you know, a couple of high school kids jamming around for fun. The Decibels formed in 1961, which would have been Bob Seger's sophomore year of high school. Originally, they actually formed as an acapella band because not everyone could play an instrument, but Bob Seger was getting better and better at the electric guitar. And after a couple years, they also had someone playing drums, they had someone else playing bass, I think. Don't quote me on that. But, you know, other people were playing other instruments and they thought, you know what, I think that the Decibels are ready for their musical debut with musical instruments. And eventually the Decibels actually became a full-fledged band. They started recording music in one of the guy's basements. Now that guy, for you music lovers out there, you might know what I'm about to say already, but that little guy's name was Max Crook, who eventually played on Del Shannon's Runaway. This was way back in the day when they were just little youngins in the basement, you know, with the mom upstairs going, what are you guys doing down there? You want some bologna sandwiches? This is kind of hilarious to me and highly inappropriate, but by the time Bob Seger was 16 years old, he and some of his schoolmates were playing gigs downtown in downtown Detroit and downtown Ann Arbor, but one of their main gigs was playing backup in a strip club for the strippers. Now at the time Bob was playing in these strip clubs, he was playing with the town criers. One day, Bob Seeger is playing in the strip club with the town criers when he gets in a fight with a guy over a stripper. And that guy's name was Doug Brown. I'm totally kidding. I have no idea how Doug Brown and Bob Seeger actually met. <laughs> I really have no idea. If anyone knows that exact interaction that occurred that connected the two, I would be very curious to know how their paths actually crossed. I'm assuming it was in the strip club because Doug Brown was also playing gigs around town and one of the main gigs was in this strip club. Whether they actually ever fought over a stripper, I don't know. But the point is, Bob Seeger and Doug Brown ended up crossing paths. 
And again, on this channel, we call it divine music intervention. In fact, I just made a couple mugs and a couple different merchandise items that say divine music intervention on them. It's a little bit different, a little bit more specific than the regular Roots Music merchandise. The Roots Music merchandise store is linked in this YouTube channel. You can see the products at the bottom of the screen, but the mugs and other things that say divine music intervention are a separate store, very important, and I will link that store in the description down below. It'll say Divine Music Intervention Merchandise. If you guys really like that type of merchandise, then I will eventually put it on the Roots Music History store. But for now, it's in a separate location. Let me know what you think and if you want to buy a Roots Music Divine Music Intervention mug. I think that would be super cute. And here we go. Because of Divine Music Intervention, Doug Brown and Bob Seger crossed paths. And within a year, Doug Brown invited Bob Seger to play in his band called The Omens as the organ player. I would imagine it was a little difficult for Doug Brown to find an organ player in the Detroit music scene. Maybe not. Maybe there were a lot of organ players, but I would imagine it was a very small select group of organ players. But if you remember, Bob Seger's father had that orchestra background and his father played everything under the sun. Bob Seger grew up learning the piano and could play the organ. So it was either in 1964 or 1965, somewhere around that time frame, Bob Seger joins up with Doug Brown and the Omens. And it was with the Omens, Bob Seger had his very first recording session, actual recording session in a music studio, not like Max Crook's basement. This connection proved to be very important and pivotal in Bob Seger's life because it was through this connection with Doug Brown, Bob Seeger became connected to Del Shannon. Del Shannon was financing everything for the Omens and was extremely well connected and well to do in the music scene. After a couple studio sessions with the Omens, Bob Seeger is thinking, you know what, I'm actually doing really well in the music industry. I mean, not super well, but better than I was a few years ago. I'm getting a lot of traction. I'm meeting a lot of people. Now I have studio time under my belt. I know how it works. He thought to himself, I'm going to form my own band. So it was around 1966. Bob Seeger formed Last Heard. Del Shannon, by the way, was not the only person Bob Seeger got connected with through Doug Brown. He also got connected to a man named Ed Andrews. Ed Andrews was a super interesting guy. He co-owned a record label called Hideout Records with a guy named David Leone. But not only did Ed Andrews co-own Hideout Records with David Leone, he also had a nightclub where he would consistently hire bands to play gigs. So through the connection with the Omens and Doug Brown, Bob Seeger now has Last Heard and needs gigs to play with Last Heard. Well, Ed Andrews starts hiring Last Heard to play in his nightclub. Now it's around the time that the Omens are starting to break up when Doug Brown says to David Leone, who owns Hideout Records, hey, you know what? My organ player is actually also a songwriter and he's written some really cool songs. He's playing with a band right now called Last Heard, but you know what? You should listen to some of his songs. You might hear something that you like. And David Leone says, hey, I'm game. Why don't you bring him into my office and I'll hear a couple of his songs. So one day, Bob Seeger grabs his acoustic guitar and walks into the office of Dave Leone at Hideout Records. Bob Seeger played a couple of his songs, but the one song that David Leone really loved was called East Side Story. After hearing the song East Side Story, Dave Leone immediately books studio time for Bob Seeger, Doug Brown, a few musicians who were part of the Omens with Doug Brown, and a few other studio session musicians who were actually part of the town criers. So everybody was there. The whole gang's all here. 
to play East Side Story in this studio session. Dave Leone and everyone comes to the studio session and Ed Andrews, who owns the nightclub where Last Heard is playing, catches wind that Bob Seger has played these songs for his business partner, Dave. So I'm a little unsure if Ed Andrews actually showed up to that session or if he just heard the song later on. But either way, Ed Andrews knows that all of this is going on and gets really excited about this possibility of new music. Ed Andrews, whose nickname was Punch, by the way, and I'm not sure how he got that nickname, Punch. When I hear Punch, I first think of Kool-Aid, like a nice little fruit punch. Then I thought about it and I thought he could have been nicknamed Punch because he actually punched someone. I have no idea, uh, but I'll call him Punch from here on out because that's what he uh, preferred to be called was Punch. That was his name. Immediately following that recording session, Punch offered to be Bob Seeger's manager. Within one year of them soft releasing the song East Side Story, it had sold over 50,000 copies. And this was something Hideout Records was not prepared for. Hideout Records was a very small indie label. I don't really think they had seen that type of success before. Eventually, the song became way more than Hideout Records could actually handle and could actually manage. At that point, Punch and Bob Seger decided to go to Cameo Records. They had more funding, they were a little bit bigger, and they could manage this response in a quicker and more efficient way than Hideout Records could. After they moved over to Cameo Records, Bob Seeger went back to his band Last Heard and said, you know what guys, I really want you to be a part of this song. It's doing so well. You are my band. You are my band. And I think we should re-record it with you. So at Cameo Records, they re-recorded the song East Side Story, this time with Last Heard. And when the song was released, it was released as Bob Seeger and Last Heard. Now for the next couple years through the late 1960s, Bob Seeger and Punch just kept knocking out song after song after song. They were doing really well until Cameo went out of business around 1967. This totally left Bob Seger and The Last Herd high and dry. They had so much momentum and so much hope for Cameo and for what was coming. It was a real blow to their careers, they thought. They reassembled, they regrouped, they lost a couple people, they brought on a couple new people, and they ultimately reassembled as the Bob Seger system and signed with Capitol Records. In the same year, Bob Seger and the Bob Seger system signed with Capitol Records. Bob Seger also married his first wife, Renee. This was a really exciting year for Bob. Everything was taking off. His musical career, his love life, everything was going really well. But soon into his relationship with Capitol Records, he came out with the song Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. Now this song ended up being huge, but before its release, Capitol Records was extremely hesitant about it. Their hesitation about the song actually really spooked Bob Seger and his manager Punch. They started to think they might have made a mistake by signing with Capitol Records. They thought maybe Capitol Records didn't believe in them as much as they thought, or Capitol Records wasn't going to give them the freedom to write the way they wanted to write. They believed in the song Ramblin' Gamblin' Man, especially given what was going on in the country at that time. It was a very anti-Vietnam War song, and Capitol Records didn't want to ruffle any feathers by putting it out there. However, after it was released in 1968, it made the top 20 and ended up being the very first real hit song for Bob Seger. Immediately following Ramblin' Gamblin' Man, Bob Seger and everyone rushed back into the studio to put out another album. They wanted to shoot while the ducks were in the air. So within one year, they released another album called Noah. 
The album, Noah, really didn't do well though, at least not as well as Ramblin' Gamblin' Man by any means. I'm hesitant to say that it totally flopped. It didn't totally flop, but it just wasn't what people were looking for. And I think a lot of things were going on in Bob Seger's life when he released Noah and when he was recording Noah. And obviously that affects your music. You know, you look at any artist, anytime they went through a rough patch in their personal life or any facet of their life, it shows in their music. I think my favorite example of this is Elle King. Her first couple albums when she was living in Texas after she had her heart broken in Nashville, they just, they weren't good. I mean, they weren't bad, but they just were not that je ne sais quoi good. And then as soon as good things started happening to her and her life just kind of blossomed and like was reborn, her music was reborn and you can see that. In fact, the only band who wasn't really affected, I think, by their personal relationships in their music was Fleetwood Mac. They were amazing at having very turbulent relationships but maintaining really good music and putting all of that aside for the good of the band. In fact, I talk about that in much more depth in my Roots documentary about Fleetwood Mac. I will link it in the description down below. But for Bob Seger and for most other people, it really does show in your music how you're doing. Bob Seger at the time was divorcing Renee. Things were going really badly in his marriage. A lot of people think he was tired of the music industry and that's why Noah didn't have that spark. But I really think it just had to do with his personal life, things falling apart with Renee. In fact, after divorcing Renee, Bob Seger would have one really long relationship from like 1972 to like, I I think 1986, something like that, but he never married that woman. I think it really was hard for Bob to go through that divorce with Renee. I don't think it was easy. After Noah was released for the next couple years, it was evident that Bob's music career wasn't doing as well as it was in the late 60s. And a lot of people thought Bob Seger is just going to be a one-hit wonder with Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. In 1971, Capitol Records released Bob Seger and Bob Seger decided to quit music. In 1971, he left. He went to college. He enrolled in full-time classes. But after just three weeks of taking classes full-time, Bob had enough and decided, I have to go back to music. That's my calling. I'm not meant to be here. I'm not meant to be in college. I'm not meant to be spending all day in a classroom. I think it's so funny that it was only after three weeks Bob Seger decides this and goes back to music. After this little college stunt for three weeks, Bob was serious about making it in the music industry. He realized in order to make it in this industry, I have to network as much as possible. So for the next several years, Bob Seger really prioritized collaborations and networking and doing things with and for other people in order to get ahead himself. It reminds me of that famous saying, we rise by lifting others. That's exactly what Bob Seger was doing. He did tons of collaborations in the early 70s and not with people who were just struggling musicians. He was actually connecting with people who had a lot of traction in the industry. He had all of these connections from Capitol Records and he really capitalized off of the Capitol Records connections. <laughs> See what I did there? little dad joke for you. One of the biggest connections Bob Seger made was with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. Not only did he have really great musical chemistry with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, they were also really good friends and they got along really well. They enjoyed their time together. One of my favorite stories of all time in the music industry and, and anywhere for that matter is the story of Rick Hall. I have a Roots documentary on who Rick Hall was and how he founded the Muscle Shoals sound, that studio in Muscle Shoals, Fame Studios, 
He's the man behind it all. And his story is incredibly tragic, but yet so inspiring. If you don't know the story of Rick Hall, or if you think you do, go ahead and watch that video. It's emotional. His life is very emotional, but the success that he found and his hard work is so inspiring. Rick Hall's son actually commented on the video. I pinned that comment. So check it out and a shout out to his son. Just an amazing guy and an amazing story. And obviously also one of Bob Seger's most cherished connections. Bob Seger played with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section on an album called Seven. It was really that album Seven that's the name of it, Seven, by the way. But it was really through that album, Seven, Bob Seeger made connections that would catapult his career. This was around 1971 through about 1973 after he had been released from Capitol Records. So he's kind of in this weird transition place in life. He's just playing with anybody who will take him. And even though Bob was very busy and was very focused and determined in his music business in this time, he was still only bringing in about $7,000 a year and that was on a good year so he was struggling to say the least actually it might have been 1974 that he played on seven might be wrong about that time frame but i'll tell you this in 1975 bob seeger was re-signed with Capitol records and released his next album called beautiful loser this was extremely exciting for bob seeger he really genuinely thought his music career was over and now to be back just a few years later releasing an album was incredibly exciting for him tina turner was also on this album again he is leveraging off of those connections leveraging off of those collaborations and he knew having someone like Tina Turner on Beautiful Loser would get it even more attention. So many different musicians played on Beautiful Losers. You had tons of studio session musicians. You also had people from the Muscle Shoals rhythm section play. And you also had four guys who I believe they also played on Seven. They were playing on Beautiful Loser and they were not part of Muscle Shoals, but they were all friends and they were all together. And they ended up thinking to themselves, we have such great chemistry now. We've played on two albums, Seven and Beautiful Loser. Why don't we actually form our own band? And it was through those four guys and Bob Seger, the Silver Bullet Band was formed. After Beautiful Loser was released, it got traction, but I don't think it got as much traction as they were really hoping for, but it got enough that they were happy. They were fine. They decided to go back into the studio and continue writing and start working on their next album, which would be the Silver Bullet Band. Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band released their first album in 1976 that featured a song that would change their lives forever, Night Moves. Working on our night moves. <laughs> night Moves was actually written about a real girlfriend Bob Seger had. He was about 19 years old, which means he was probably forming his very first band at the time, The Decibels, remember them? This girl had brown hair, apparently. He totally fell in love with her. They had this young love rendezvous, but the girl had a boyfriend who had been deployed in the military. He was at war, she kind of starts dating Bob Seeger, but then he came back from war and she married him and it absolutely broke Bob Seeger's heart. It was his very first heartbreak. And something tells me Bob Seeger is a very actually emotional guy who feels very deeply. It reminds me of Don McLean. Don McLean is like that. He felt very deeply. Stephen Stills, um, I believe Stephen Stills felt super deep emotions, not in a weird way and not in like a depressing way, just in a way that they just were very passionate about life and about life events. In fact, Stephen Stills, when he wrote the song Southern Cross, he was on a heart
heartbreak vacation because his friends said to Stephen, look, you're pretty down in the dumps. Why don't you come on vacation with us? We're going to go sailing. You're going to love it. It'll keep your mind off of her. But of course, on the sailing trip, all he is thinking about is his heartbreak. And he ends up writing the lyrics to Southern Cross, which he then put to music from a song that was originally called Seven League Boots. That's a whole other Roots documentary, of course. But it reminds me of Bob Seger because he does. He had like he's carrying this heartbreak from being 19 years old throughout his life to the point where now it's 1975 and he's writing a song called Night Moves about that from just years ago. Well, the 1976 release of Night Moves did not disappoint. Night Moves was the first song for Bob Seger to reach the top 10. And this was just the beginning of his explosive music career. Two years later, Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band decided to release another album. Now, it's interesting because throughout most of Bob's career, once a song did really well, he would just rush to make another album and put out another song. Kind of like Randy Rhodes and Ozzy Osbourne. They did the same thing. You know, oh, this, we want to shoot while the ducks are in the air. Let's get back in the studio and let's record right away. But this time he waited two years. He really let Night Moves have its moment. He kind of made people miss him a little bit. This album had a single called Still the Same, which ended up beating out Night Moves on the charts. Still the Same made it to the top five. Now this album, Strangers in Town, was recorded with soon-to-be Eagles members Glenn Fry and Don Felder. I feel like you always have to specify which Eagles members you're talking about because there was so many musical chairs with the Eagles in so many different points in time. Of course, you know what I'm about to say. I have a Roots documentary all about the story behind the Eagles and their relationship, but these two guys played a huge role in Bob Seger's career. Now, this album also had some other hits that I know you know, like Old Time Rock and Roll. Two years after Stranger in Town was released, he released another album that featured the single Against the Wind. Against the Wind! Against the Wind also hit the top five. I think in a lot of ways, Bob Seger kind of couldn't believe it because for the longest time, he really thought either he was always going to be a one-hit wonder and just kind of putts around the music industry after that or his music career was genuinely done with. I think even after he quit music and went to college full-time and came back, he didn't fully think he was really going to make it in the music industry. He was putzing around as a studio session musician and just as a songwriter I think he genuinely believed that was going to be his life. And the thing about Bob is he was totally fine with just being in the shadows of the music scene. He didn't have to be the main character of the book. He loved music. He loved writing. He loved playing. And that was good enough for Bob. Divine Music Intervention had other plans. And all of us were meant to know Bob Seger. And God made sure of that. Because through the 1980s, Bob Seger continues to maintain a fabulous music career. In fact, his song, Like a Rock, was used as the theme song for Chevy truck commercials from somewhere around the mid-1980s to 1990s. I think Bob Seger was in a way testing his luck because every time he released an album, that single would blow up into the top five. That happened three times in a row. So in 1991, Bob decides to release another single, and this one was met with a lukewarm response. It wasn't, it didn't blow up, it didn't totally flop, but it didn't make the top five and it definitely didn't beat out his last single like each time before. As Spinal Tap would call it, this 1991 year was 
a year of a selective audience for Bob. Now again, whenever someone releases something and it's not doing enormously well, I'm always curious what's going on in their personal life. And looking into this year of 1991 for Bob Seeger, this was the year that he lost his mother. His mother, Charlotte, passed away peacefully at the age of 75. And it was in the same year that he lost his mom, his second wife found out she was pregnant with their very first child. I kind of missed that part, but Bob Seeger did remarry. I think it was in 1990, early 1990s. I'd have to check on that. Bob Seeger was so cute about the birth of his first child. He said publicly that it gave him a, quote, renewed sense of purpose. In 1995, the movie Forrest Gump breathed new air into his song Against the Wind when they decided to use it in their movie's soundtrack. Two years ago, Bob Seeger lost a very dear friend named Alto Reed. Alto Reed played the saxophone for him and had been with him for decades. It was then Bob Seger released a statement saying that after 50 years, he was ready to retire from music because it just wouldn't be the same without Alto. I'm going to link an interview that Bob Seger gave to Sirius XM about this because you will see what I mean. You can tell that Bob Seger has a heart of gold. He has such a tender heart. He gets choked up on the interview talking about the moment Alto called him and told him he had cancer. I hope that you enjoyed this Roots documentary on Bob Seger. I hope you enjoy his music even more. And if you like this type of content, don't forget to give it a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. You have no idea how much that helps just to have one extra subscriber or one extra thumbs up. And I will see you on the next Roots documentary. I'm